Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariyah on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi al-lidhin astafa. Khususan ala sayyidi rasuli wa khatamil anbiya wa ala alihi al-askiya wa ashabihi al-atqiya amma ba'd. From the family members of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, there were four particular individuals who were described as resembling Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam very closely. Their physical features were just like Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You have Abu Sufyan ibn al Harith bin Abdul Muttalib, who was a cousin of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then there is Qutham bin Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, who was another cousin of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hassan bin Ali bin Abi Talib. Hassan radiallahu an was the grandchild of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the fourth companion, whose Story we will cover today is Ja'far bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said regarding him, Ashbaha khalquka khalqi wa ashbaha khulquka khulqi That your physical features have matched mine and your character is also the same as mine. Ja'far radiallahu an was the older brother of Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu an, And he was 10 years older than him in age. Their father, Ali radiallahu an, and Ja'far radiallahu an's father, Abu Talib, financially struggled during the years of drought in Makkah Mukarramah. When things became very difficult, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, along with um, his uncle Abbas approached Abu Talib and they said, allow us to lighten your burden. Abu Talib agreed and therefore Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he brought Ali radiallahu an into his home. And Ali radiallahu an was therefore raised like a child of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Jafar was brought into the home of Al-Abbas radiallahu an. And therefore grew up in that environment, in that household, and was taken care of. 
He is also one of the first to accept Islam. Some scholars list him in the very early, the early handful that accepted Islam. They have his name listed there. While others like Ibn Ishaq have said that he was the 31st companion to accept Islam. Some have put him in the mid-20s, 24, 25, around then. But most likely he was one of the earliest companions to accept Islam after the first four or five Ja'far was there. Because he saw Rasulullah and Abu Bakr Siddiq knew that he was close to Rasulullah in every aspect, so he presented Islam to him. When we turn to the life of Ja'far we find some very beautiful lessons and stories. We see his love and closeness to the Prophet We see the sacrifice that he took on for the sake of this deen. And not only did he migrate once, but he migrated twice. He migrated in the earlier group of companions to Abyssinia. And then later on from Abyssinia, he migrated a second time. He performed hijrah a second time to Medina Munawwara. And I've explained this issue before that hijrah wasn't a small sacrifice, it was a massive sacrifice. Because it basically meant you were leaving your house behind, you were leaving many of your strong, hard assets behind and starting, quite honestly, again. So he did that once by moving to Abyssinia, and then did it again when he arrived in Medina Munawwara. In the story of Ja'far radiallahu anhu, we also see his intelligence. Something we'll study a little further when we discuss his dialogue with Najashi, the ruler of Abyssinia. Ja'far radiallahu anhu was also described by the companions as a very generous person, that when they were hungry or thirsty, if they were weak, they would go to Ja'far radiallahu anhu, and whatever he had, he would share it with them. And the last big lesson, from Ja'far that we will learn today is al-shuja'a wal-iqdam. That he wasn't someone to hold back. Ja'far was a courageous man and when the time called for it, he pushed forward. And no matter how, thing, how hard things got, he did not pull back. He kept going forward and kept going forward. And that was a beautiful thing about these companions that difficult times didn't cause them to recede backwards when things became difficult and hard, they didn't fear because they knew that by their side was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they had the dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So let the difficulties come. We will continue to push forward and even if it means that I have to sacrifice my life, I am content and happy in knowing that I will find my companionship with the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When things became difficult in Makkah Mukarramah for the companions, Ja'far radiallahu anh, along with his wife Asma bint Umais, sought permission from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to migrate to Abyssinia. This wasn't something easy for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, neither was it easy for Ja'far. There were few people that believed in the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam from his family. And Ja'far radiallahu anh, was the closest of kin to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saw that in these very short five, six years that he spent with the Prophet of Allah, Ja'far radiallahu anhu grew. He accepted Islam before the Prophet of Allah even arrived in Darul Arqam. 
So before there was a group, before there was a congregation, while there were just a few people spread throughout Makkah Mukarramah, he was one of those people. We have more people in this gathering right now than the number of people that existed around Rasulullah wasallam when Ja'far became Muslim. Right? Before Dar al-Arqam had 50, 60 companions there. But when Ja'far accepted Islam, these handful of people had the direct, direct tawajjuh and attention of Nabi wasallam. That's one of the beautiful things about joining um, a teacher and a murabbi when it isn't cool to join that teacher or to be by the side of that murabbi. There's a special attention that you receive. There are special du'as. There's a special guidance. There's a very personal, intimate relationship that exists that along the way, small adjustments are made. That you should rethink this like this. You should reconsider this issue and think of it that way. That personalized attention Ja'far radiallahu anh received. And now when you see that this the seed that you put into the ground is beginning to blossom. And he's become the great leader and eloquent speaker that he is. He seeks permission from Rasulullah to part. Nabi was very heavy in his heart, but he granted permission to Ja'far. He migrated along with his wife Asma and some other companions to Abyssinia. Little did they know that when they arrived in Abyssinia, they thought that they were getting away from the oppression of the Quraysh, but the Quraysh were going to follow them. The Quraysh were not done, because these were people of name and supposed honor. They could not bear the fact that the story would spread throughout Arabia, that the Quraysh were unbearable. They weren't just. They were oppressive people. They couldn't take care of their own. You know how like in our community, when things get tough and you know, people are more worried about what people will say than actually dealing with the reality. That what are people gonna say so-and-so got married here? What are people gonna say that so-and-so person's child went to study here? What are they gonna say that, you know, that so-and-so person, rather than living with his parents in his same home, he took a career in another city? People are so worried about what are others gonna say because there's an obsession with you know, my own image. And Quraysh, couldn't accept that they were harsh, they were oppressive to their people. Rather than turning their attention to justice, softness, fulfilling the rights of others, they sent two people immediately to go and bring these people back. Do whatever it takes. Now the two people who head out on this journey, one of them is Amr ibn As, who later on becomes Muslim, radiallahu anhu. And the second one, there is a little bit of a difference of opinion among the historians. In one narration that Imam Dhahabi rahmatullahi alayhi narrates, he cites the name of Umara ibn al-Walid. But then the second opinion, which is more common among the Ahlul Sir, is Abdullah bin Abi Rabi'ah. These individuals arrive in Abyssinia. And Amr bin As has a relationship with Najashi, the leader from before. He's come here multiple times for business and trade. He's an intelligent man. He knows the people around. He knows the layout of the court. He knows the people that sit around the king. So when he comes to Abyssinia, he doesn't come empty-handed. He wants to win everyone's heart, therefore applying a little bit more pressure on Najashi to persuade him to send the people back with him. When Amr ibn As 
arrives in Abyssinia. When the Sahaba hear of this, you can imagine how terrified they are. That these guys, they won't leave us alone. It's like I just got out of this abusive relationship and that guy's knocking on the door again. They were terrified. They were very uncomfortable. And then they saw Amr ibn As anhu's finesse. How intelligent he was. Umm Salama radiallahu anha, who was one of the people that was there in Abyssinia, she narrates the full riwayah of what happened. She says that Amr ibn As radiallahu anhu came to the court of Najashi bearing gifts. And to all the people who sat in the court of Najashi, from the religious folks to the political leaders, he gave every one of them individual personalized gifts, including Najashi. And there was not a person left in the gathering, but they had received their gift. And then he began to speak. He says to Najashi that there are some people in your community who have run away from our community. They turned away from the religion of our forefathers and they caused disruption in our community. These are people who are young and they're not too intelligent. They're not thinking smart. They're not capable of making their own decisions wisely. So I come to you on behalf of my community, asking you to do the right thing and send them back to Makkah Mukarramah under my possession. Najashi, he turned to his advisors and they were gifted. Lobbying was done. Their pockets were nice and plush. So they jumped in to support Amr ibn As, that why don't you send them back? It's not a big deal. It's inconsequential. We know this person. What he's saying is right. Let's not take this burden. Let's not break an existing relationship. Najashi became very angry. And he said, by Allah, I will not send them back until I call them and I ask them of what has been attributed towards them. And this is such a beautiful statement of his because when Rasulullah sent the companions to Habasha, he said that I am sending you there because in those lands is a just ruler. There is a just king that resides there. And Najashi's statement shows his justice that I will not give these people back. Until I know what has been attributed. Is this true or is it not? So he tells these two people, you guys, stay, you guys stay here, stay put. And he sends a messenger that called the Muslims. Um Salama radiallahu anha says that the messenger of Najashi came and everyone was worried and scared. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? They knew that Najashi would give them an opportunity to speak. So before they even left, their homes, they said, that Jafar, you will be the spokesperson. One of the earliest to accept Islam. Someone who gained his tarbiyah directly under Rasulullah A relative of the Prophet of Allah And this shows us that they weren't hungry for leadership. I mean, this was a big moment. This is a spokesman opportunity. This is like being invited by the House, the Senate, to the White House that come and speak your truth. This is where everyone wants to run forward for that photo op and to be cited in the newspaper and to have their name plastered all over media. To take a picture and then to brag with that picture to build your own personal relationships and open up other business opportunities for yourself for the next rest of your life. But that's not what they did. They understood the stakes were high here. If we have one person to represent us 
And that person will speak the truth. And that person's responsibility is to convince Najashi of our case, then we need to appoint the most appropriate individual for this task. We need to find someone that's qualified. We need to find someone with seniority. We want someone who represents the Prophet of Allah in every manner, Ja'far bin Abi Talib. No one will speak except for him. فَذَهَبْنَا إِلَى النَّجَاسِ We went to Najashi. Um Salma radiallahu anha says, and we sat around him. And we saw Abdullah bin Abi Rabi'ah and Amr ibn al-As also sitting there. Najashi then spoke and said, what is this new religion of yours? You left the religion of your forefathers and you did not enter into our deen. You have your own. Tell me about your religion. Ja'far bin Abi Talib delivers an epic speech. One to be studied and memorized by any person who ever desires to represent Islam to non-Muslims. Anyone that wants to walk the path of activism. Anyone that wants to stand in front of the world and actually say what Islam is. Because Muslims will be given the opportunity of Ja'far bin Abi Talib. We have been given this chance in the past, we are presented with it today, and it will be presented to us for as long as this world remains. But the question is that the people who talk about Islam to non-Muslims, what are they thinking? It seems as if most people that are speaking about Islam to this greater audience are not interested in representing Islam so much as much as they are thirsty to be accepted by the audiences they stand in front of. There is no freedom in their heart, there's no freedom in their mind. These people are slaves. That you tell me which direction to go, pull my collar this way, I'll go there, pull my collar that way, I'll go there. What do you want me to say about LGBTQ issues? What do you want me to say about secularism? What do you want me to say about liberalism? You tell me what I need to say. How woke should I be? Am I allowed to wear my hijab? I'll wear it. Am I not allowed to wear it? I won't wear it. Am I supposed to wear it like a turban? I'll do that. You want me to wear a rainbow flag hijab? I'll do that for you too. You tell me, what am I supposed to do? This is the representation of Islam that we have today, unfortunately, in the West and in the Muslim community. This is what's happening today when Muslims talk about Islam at large. There is no hamiya, there is no ghira, there is no izza that a person says, you know, and these questions come up every year. Part of it seems to be from a place of accommodation some of these issues, not these issues per se, but other issues. Like should we, say, should, we, should we say Happy Christmas? Should we celebrate with our neighbors when it comes to, you know, the different, the various religious festivals that we have, whether it's Easter or this or that. Part of it I understand comes to not wanting to be foreign. But beyond that, there's an aspect of also just being proud. There's nothing wrong with saying that I don't celebrate this festival. This seems to be a religious festival and I hold a different faith. And in my faith, this festival of yours is contradictory to what we believe in. So I can respect you as a person. I can be kind to you. But as far as joining you in this festivity in any manner at all, I can't do that. That's about laying boundaries. It's about drawing the line. That this is what I can do and this is what I, I won't do. 
Assimilating into another culture is important. Right? Not, fully, not full assimilation, but to whatever capacity your religion allows. It's, it's a good thing. You dress a particular way, you speak a particular way, you, know, you enjoy sports, you enjoy entertainment. These are good things. But as Muslims, there will always be a line. And that line is one that is set by Allah and His Rasul It's fascinating because today while I was teaching at the seminary, this was an issue that I brought up in more than one class today. This particular statement. That we should always be there to accommodate people who are either not religious at that point in their life or are looking to be more religious. We should always be there to accommodate them. But never at the same time should you dilute the deen that you go from accommodation to now setting the bar low, so low that that person no longer aspires for growth anymore. That now you've created a new norm. The norm for the Muslim is the sunnah of Rasulullah Anything below that is okay, as far as personal growth goes. We hope that everyone can slowly chug along the path of life and slowly make their way to a better place. But nowhere should we normalize something that isn't from the deen and make that the deen. This is why the ulama of the past would say that when you're looking for dress, what kind of dress should you wear? Look at the ulama of that community. When you're looking at how should you communicate with people? How do you carry yourself? They would always say, look at the ulama of the community. Because the idea was that our tradition is inherited from heart to heart. Where a student sees their teacher, how they practice, and they see their teacher, how they practice, and see their teachers, how they practice. And along the way, where adjustments are needed, they make those adjustments, but ensure that there is growth with a strong identity. Sheikh Yusuf rahimahullah ta'ala, one thing that he was criticized for a lot, my dear beloved teacher and mentor, one thing that he was criticized for a lot was um, encouraging students from the madrasa to go to your standard secular universities. He would encourage all students to go get their undergraduate and go get their masters. And many mashayikh and ulama, while I studied with him, they would send these hate mail letters. Those days email wasn't a thing, so they would send faxes and letters written. And they were very, very rough. Some of those people would say that you are sending these scholars, because they would graduate with alamiyah degrees, you're sending them off to shaitan, you're sending them to the den of shaitan, you're destroying their iman, you're sending them to kufr, they would go on and on. I'm sure all of it was from a sincere place. We shouldn't assume ill of another person. But Shaykh Yusuf Taala, in private gatherings, he would say to us that what I am doing right now will bear fruit in the future. I want to see ulama also be physicians. I want to see them as lawyers. I want to see ulama of the deen as chaplains. I want to see them in every aspect of life. This is my dream. And subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted him and accepted his vision to such a degree that now you see those very same people. And what was the lesson? The lesson was you go to the universities, go and take what you need, go and get that degree, go and get that knowledge, but don't sell your soul along the way. You stay strong and pray your salah on the campus. You make sure you're doing your Jum'ah Salah. Make sure you're busy with your dhikr. While everyone's walking around and they're getting involved with this Alpha and this Omega and this Beta, whatever it is that they're working on, you make sure that you don't get involved with their Beta. You stay focused on your MSA. Or in England, they call it an ISOC, the Islamic Association. You stick, you, you stick with that Islamic society. You stick with your community, you stick with your people. And 
The truth is that's life. You can't be in four walls for as long as you live in this dunya. You find exposure. You know, even though this may be a little unrelated, but I'll share it with you. When I went to uh, Canada this two weeks ago, I went to the grave of Sheikh Yusuf Taala. He passed away there. He passed away there and is buried there too. And we went to give salam. I took my children with me too. And then read some Quran on his grave as well. And while we were there, there was something very beautiful and fascinating that I saw. The entire graveyard, everywhere I looked, there was dry grass throughout the entire graveyard except for the patch directly over the grave of Shaykh Yusuf Ta'ala. It was fresh, plush, green grass. And I said to my children in that moment, look at this. If this isn't a karama, then you tell me what a karama is. If this isn't an honor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then what is this? Everywhere you look, every grave, anywhere you look, left, right, center, anywhere you look, all dry, brown, yellow grass. And then right above his grave, just for that one little area there, there was this plush, fresh, green grass. Allah la alayhim wa that the awliya of Allah, Allah takes care of them. And to me that fresh grass, inshallah, represents not just a garden above the grave, but a garden inside the grave too. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't abandon his friends. A man who dedicated his entire life, left his hometown, left his country, just like Jafar bin Abi Talib radiallahu anh. He left all of it, on his case, on the command of his shaykh, Shaykh Zakaria said to him, go to England, and established the first madrasa there. Where do I go? Where's England? Never been there. Don't speak the language. Don't know anyone there. Just go. And Sheikh Zakaria was a visionary. One night, it was in Ramadan. It was one of the odd nights, the last 10 nights of Ramadan. Sheikh Zakaria he was in his majlis, in, I believe it was in Saharanpur. And he said to one of the khadims that go and call Mazri Alam. So they call Mawlana Mazri Alam Sahib. And Mawlana Mazri Alam Sahib said to him, he said to Mawlana Mazri Alam Sahib that in this Mubarak night, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put a Mubarak thought in my heart, an ilham. And you are a Mubarak person. I want you to go to North America specifically Canada, and serve the deen there. Mahana Mazri Alam Saf is like a person from small village, India. Where is America? This is like, you know, in the 70s and 80s. So he went back and Mahana Mazri the night continued, he went back and whatever he was doing, he called him a second time. And he said, no, you must leave now. Like right now, pack your bags and go. So he went home, quickly gathered some of his belongings and caught a flight and arrived in Montreal, I believe it was. And um, when he got there, didn't speak the language. He got to the airport, he's saying that I'm here to do khidmah of the deen. They said, what khidmah? Which masjid are you a part of? There was one masjid there. They said, we have a guy here, he says he wants to teach the deen. You know, so the masjid people went and they, he sta- I, I believe his students were telling me he spent two, three days in the airport because they wouldn't release him. These are old days. Finally someone came and they took him. And out of all of the students of Shaykh Zakari rahimahullah ta'ala that 
he dispatched to do khidmah in North America, he is the only one alive now. He is the only one still alive. Very old man. Still in that very same Cornwall community uh, where he was, where he is, just doing the khidmah, teaching the deen, teaching Quran, teaching hadith to people. And these people left a legacy for us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate their maqam. And imagine the, the, the sight of Shaykh Zakari rahmatullahi alayhi. And not just him, but these mashayikh who lived far, who sent their students, not to one country, but to all continents. That you will go to South Africa, you will go to the northern part of Africa, you will go to West Africa, you go to East Africa, you're going to go to Europe here, you go to you know, um, Portugal, and you go here, and you go there. Every one of them. When I graduated Madrasa, I said to Shaykh Yusuf rahimahullah, like most students do after they graduate, that I'm planning to stay in England. After you graduate, you build a relationship with your teachers that you don't want to go anymore. You want to stay where they are. So Shaykh Yusuf Ta'ala, he says to me, that no, no, you have to go back to America. That's where the vision is for you. Go. It wasn't easy. It was hard. But Allah reward him for pushing me out of my comfort zone. Sending, sending me back here. And along the way, very carefully guiding. I remember I said to him, that Shaykh, I want to do khidmah and uh, I'd like to teach at a university, specifically the University of Louisville. I always wanted to teach there. So I said, I'd like to be a professor and teach at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. He said, no, no, that's not the vision for you. Focus on this instead. And slowly, slowly, Allah puts it in the hearts of these righteous folks where the khidmah of the deen needs to be uh, existent. And... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a mysterious way of allowing things to come into existence. And to that we are indebted to them. May Allah fill all of their graves with nur. So Ja'far radiallahu an now, he stands in front of Najashi and he delivers this powerful speech. It's one that teaches us Muslims to not shy away from what you believe in. To be confident, to be strong, to be systematic even when you speak, to be intelligent, to be courageous to speak your truth. To understand not everyone will agree with your truth, but if you're wise when you speak it, and if you're sincere and you make dua to Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow that truth to reach the hearts of the people that actually need to hear it. You are nothing more than a vessel. And as long as you remember that, as long as you stay humble and don't consider yourself the one that is going to bring change, rather you understand that change lies purely under the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتَ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَهُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِالْمُهْتَدِينَ So Ja'far radiallahu anh starts his speech, أَيُّهَا الْمَلِكِ Just the way he starts it, shows his intelligence. He starts off by saying, Oh dear king, and I add dear in there because it's kind of connotated in the way the statement is, Ayyuhal Malik. Right? There's respect built into it. He acknowledges the person that he's speaking to. He understands the person that he's talking to is rightfully the king. And by accepting his position, he is acknowledging in this gathering of people that I understand the maqam of the person that I'm talking to. I understand the authority that he has in this conversation. And he also builds a bridge. Because when you come in and when you're talking to people of authority and you refuse to recognize their authority, 
how are they going to have any sympathy towards you? How are they going to have any compassion towards you? Someone comes to their father and says, Baba. The father says, yes, he understands his place. Someone comes to his father and says, Mahmud. His dad's like, what? What'd you say? You said, what? And then he makes his request that, I'm going to stay awake till 11 o'clock. And his dad's like, no, you're not staying awake till 11 o'clock. You're going to your bed. When? Right now. This exact second. You should have been in your bed 10 minutes ago. Jafar radiallahu anh starts off with respect. Ayyuhal Malik. And then when he starts off, he starts his conversation not where they are in that moment, that there are people making an accusation against them. He's not speaking directly to those people. He's not calling them out too because he understands that these people may already have a relationship with Najashi that he doesn't know. He doesn't want to get into a fight where he says something about them, they say something about him. Jafar radiallahu anh takes a story back to the beginning. Let me tell you about our origin story. We were a people of ignorance, worshipping idols, eating carrion. We would engage in immorality, sever family ties. We were not kind to our neighbors, we were harsh to our neighbors. The strong from us would oppress and eat from the weak from among us. In one narration, he says, That we gave more attention to our pets and animals than we even gave to our own children, we would bury them alive. That was a sort of community we were in. Imagine the societal confusion. Imagine the theological and belief confusion that exists in the hearts of these people. This is where we were. And nobody cared for us. Nobody was there to guide us. No one was interested in solving these very real issues that related to us at every level. Na'bud al-Islam in our faith. No one was talking about justice. No one was there to fix society. Everyone in Mecca Muqarramah is focused on what? Our tribal honor. Everyone was busy building their tribal honor. Then he talks about the inqilab. The change came. How did the change come? حَتَّى بَعَثَ اللَّهُ إِلَيْنَا رَسُولًا Allah sent a messenger. That's the second part of our story. And this messenger wasn't some random who came out of a cave one day and said, I have some, you know, some prophecies for you. I'm some Nostradamus. No, that's not some rando that came. We knew who this man was and he was a hundred out of a hundred even before he said Iqra. He was perfect. Every aspect, he never lied. He was a truthful person. He was not into immorality that he was trying to sleep around here and there. His lineage was pure. He comes from a people of leaders. If you come from a pure lineage, why not just continue to ride that wave? Why is he stepping out of his comfort zone and, come and facing the challenges that we face? Now, he's introduced the Prophet ﷺ, the next step. In this genius speech of his, he talks about the fundamentals of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam's teachings regarding iman. فَدَعَانَا إِلَى اللَّهِ لِنُوَحِّدَهُ وَنَعْبُدَهُ وَنَخْلَعَ مَا كُنَّا نَعْبُدُ نَحْنُ وَآبَاؤُنَا مِن دُونِهِ مِنَ الْحِجَارَةِ وَالْأَوْفَانِ His message was one. Worship Allah and leave everyone other than Allah. That was his message. لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ After he lays out the iman, now he goes into akhlaq, and then he goes into a'mal. 
What are the akhlaq the Prophet taught us? Why does he focus on akhlaq? Because the akhlaq are, the iman part was unique to Muslims, la ilaha illallah. But now he's going to teach that message of Rasulullah which was common and universal and not only applied to Muslims, but applies to every human being. Our Prophet didn't teach us something that would corrupt human beings, humanity, even those who didn't believe in us, didn't believe in our message, didn't believe in our faith. He taught us, وَأَمَرَنَا بِصِدْقِ الْحَدِيثِ وَأَدَاءِ الْأَمَانَةِ وَسِلَةِ الرَّحِمِ وَحُسْنِ الْجِوَارِ وَالْكَفِّ عَنِ الْمَحَارِمِ وَحَقْنِ الدِّمَاءِ وَنَهَانَ عَنِ الْفَوَاحِشِ وَقَوْلِ الزُّورِ وَأَكْلِ مَارِ الْيَتِيمِ وَقَذْفِ الْمُحْسَنَاتِ That at every level, whatever was considered to be the best, that's what Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us to be truthful. To never betray someone that has trusted you. That always take care of your family. Be kind and dutiful to your neighbors. Never engage in anything haram. Don't spill the blood of another. Rather, protect the honor of another person. He told us to never engage in immoral acts publicly or privately. That you do not submit a false testimony in the court that when you are asked to speak regarding the honor of another, don't think about your tribe, their tribe, what you benefit, trying to benefit another person. You speak your conscience. Nahana an al zur. That's what a zur is. Shahadat al-zur. Do not touch the wealth of those that are unfortunate and may not be able to protect themselves. It's an easy place for you to go and rob someone who can't defend. But no, remember that there is a day that you will have to stand in front of Allah and answer for that. Don't take a penny that doesn't belong to you. Don't eat a cracker that isn't yours. Don't touch a shoe that doesn't belong to you. You know, Don't scratch a car. Don't bump another person's car. Don't dump your garbage on someone else's lawn. Don't take from someone else's cable. Someone else's cable. Don't steal other people's electricity. Like, be mindful of these things. Don't steal someone else's internet. It's not yours, don't do it. وَنَهَانَا عَنْ أَكْلِ مَالِ الْيَتِيمِ وَقَضْفِ الْمُحْصَنَاتِ And do not tarnish the honor of another. As for what do we believe in, in terms of our faith, what is it actually about? وَأَمَرَنَا أَنْ نَعْبُدَ اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ وَلَا نُشْرِكُ بِهِ شَيْئًا وَأَنْ نُقِيمَ الصَّلَاةِ وَنُؤْتِيَ الزَّكَاةِ that he taught us to give zakat, he taught us to fast. The Prophet of Allah taught us to establish our prayer. فَصَدَّقْنَاهُ So what did we do? When someone comes to you with such a beautiful message, we believed in him. وَآمَنَّا بِهِ And we accepted him. وَاتَّبَعْنَاهُ عَلَى مَا جَاءَ بِهِ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ We fully accepted revelation. فَحَلَّلْنَا مَا حَلَّ لَنَا وَحَرَّمْنَا مَا حَرَّمَ لَنَا We followed his guidance. After he's done here, he's presented his case, so now he hands it over back to Najashi. But again, look at his eloquence. Ayyuhal Malik, O dear King, our people, their only problem is that when we made the change, they couldn't accept us. They didn't like the change. They rebelled and turned against us. They tortured us for what we believed in. And it was all because of our deen. For no other reason. We committed no crime in society. We did not harm anyone. It was purely because we what we believed in. And when things got out of control, وَلَمَّا ظَلَمُونَا وَقَهَرُونَا وَضَيِّقُوا عَلَيْنَا وَحَالُوا بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَ دِينِنَا خَرَجْنَا إِلَىٰ بِلَادِكَ When things got out of control and we could no longer protect ourselves, we came to your land. 
our hope is we hope that you will grant us your protection and that we will not be oppressed in your court. Everyone in the gathering is shocked. Wow, that's how you speak. Najashi says, okay, he wants dalil, right? So he asked him for the dalil, for Jafar radiallahu anh, what is it that you believe in? Jafar radiallahu anh presented this beautiful speech. So he says to him, okay, you talk about revelation, then why don't you present some revelation? What is it that your Prophet came with? Recite some of it before me. هَلْ مَعَكَ شَيْءٌ مِمَّا جَاءَ بِهِ نَبِيُّكُمْ عَنِ اللَّهِ قَالَ نَعَمْ نَعَمْ قَالَ فَقْرَأْهُ عَلَيَّ فَقَرَأْ عَلَيْهِ كَافْ هَا يَعِينْ صَادْ ذِكْرُ رَحْمَةِ رَبِّكَ عَبَدَهُ زَكَرِيَّ Ja'far رضي الله عنه began to recite the opening verses of Surah Maryam. While he's reciting them, Najashi breaks down into tears and he begins to cry. He's crying away by hearing the ayat of the Qur'an. Many mufassirun say, this is a misdaq of the first verse of the seventh juz of the Qur'an. وَإِذَا سَمِعُوا مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَى الرَّسُولِ تَرَى أَعْيُنَهُمْ تَفِيدُ مِنَ الدَّمْعِ مِمَّا عَرَفُوا مِنَ الْحَقِّ That it's actually talking about Najashi. That when he heard the ayat of the Qur'an, وَإِذَا سَمِعُوا مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَى الرَّسُولِ تَرَى أَعْيُنَهُمْ تَفِيدُ مِنَ الدَّمْعِ مِمَّا عَرَفُوا مِنَ الْحَقِّ That they saw the truth in that message, so their eyes begin to pour. And that is the power of the kalam of Allah. Sit with it every day yourself. Take some time out. When you're sitting in your car, turn off your radio, turn off your Spotify, let go of your phone calls, deal with them later, enjoy the Qur'an. Read one juz of Qur'an at least every single day and try to engage with it. It'll take you half an hour, 45 minutes, one hour, but the best one hour you can spend while sitting in front of the Qur'an reading it and fully appreciating that this is my Rabb speaking to me. This is my Allah. Read these verses, find strength in them. Every ayah you read, you will find a lesson there. Because this is the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there is not one part of the kalam of Allah that is in vain. You just need a heart that is excited. You need a heart that is sincere. You need a heart that is open. A heart that is humble. A heart that appreciates revelation. And as you read through it, there is one reading of the Qur'an that is part part. Not that. You have to sit with it properly. Imagine a person that's reading this ayah on the way to work. Or a person who's had a rough day at work, probably just got fired, or had a rough meeting with their superior, and on the way back they're reading the ayah. وَمَا مِن دَابَّةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا وَيَعْلَمُ مُسْتَقَرَّهَا وَمُسْتَوْدَعَهَا كُلٌّ فِي كِتَابٍ مُبِينٍ Allah has taken the responsibility of your sustenance. Don't worry. It's all been written. You do your best and He'll take care of the rest. Any person that's worked for 40, 50, 60 years, some of the seniors in our community go and sit with them and they'll tell you there was a point in my life where I thought it was all going to fail. It was all going to come crumbling down. And then, وَمَنْ يَتَوَكَّلْ عَرَى اللَّهِ فَهُوَ حَسْبُ يَتَّقِ اللَّهِ يَجْعَلَهُ مَخْرَجَ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يَحْتَسِبُ That from the unexpected, from nowhere, the risk opened up. The door opened up. 
Allah sent someone in that moment who said something that gave them that confidence they needed. Mustaqarraha, mustawda'aha. Where it is, where it is to be released. Allah has it all noted down. Najashi in that moment says that what this man recited, the Qur'an, and the revelation that was given to Isa alayhi salam come from the exact same lantern. Min mishkatin wahidatin. This is one source. And then he says to Abdullah and Amr ibn As that you guys leave, there is no way. Wallahi la uslimuhum ilaykuma abada. I'm going to send these people back. No way that's going to happen. You two have failed. Get out of here. Um Salma radiallahu anha, she's still narrating the hadith. This whole story is hers. She's narrating it first, first hand. She saw it. فَلَمَّا خَرَجْنَا مِنْ عِنْدَ النَّجَاشِ تَوَعَدَنَا عَمْرُ بْنَ عَاسِ وَقَالَ لِصَاحِبِهِ وَاللَّهِ لَأَتِيَنَّ الْمَلِكَ غَدًا وَلَا أَذْكُرَنَّ لَهُ مِنْ أَمْرِهِمْ مَا يَمْلَأُ صَدْرَهُ غَيْضًا مِنْهُمْ That when they were leaving, Amr ibn Asr made sure the Muslims heard it and he said to his buddy, that tomorrow I'm going to go back to Najashi for round two and I have a secret that I'm going to put in front of him. And when I say it, his heart will boil with anger towards them. The Muslims weren't sure, what is he going to say? The next day, Amr ibn As comes for round two. أيها الملك إن هؤلاء الذين آويتهم وحميتهم يقولون في عيسى بن مريم قولا عظيما فأرسليهم وسلهم عما يقولون فيه. That you know these Muslims that you're giving refuge to, they have a very horrible thing to say about Isa عليه السلام because they were Christians. Najashi was Christian. It was a uh, it, it was under the rule of the Byzantine Empire. So Christianity was very strong there. Najashi, a second time, he calls the Muslims in. There's a question here. Something to think about. That when the Muslims arrive in front of Najashi and they are being asked point blank by Najashi, what is it that you believe in? They know in that moment that their belief regarding Isa differs from what this guy believes in. Their belief is that Isa is the son of God. We don't believe that. We believe something different. What's our answer? Ja'far bin Abi Talib radiallahu an, his answer, he said, Wallahi ma naqulu illa ma qalallah. When asked, what is your belief regarding Isa salam? He said, by Allah we only say what Allah said. So then, Najashi said to him, Okay, tell me what it is that you say. What is it that you believe? You say that you believe what Allah said. What is it that Allah said? فَأَجَابَ جَعْفَرْ إِنَّهُ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولُهُ وَرُوحُهُ وَكَلِمَتُهُ الَّتِي أَلْقَاهَا إِلَى مَرْيَمَ الْعَبْرَاءَ الْبَتُولِ That he is a servant of Allah and his messenger who miraculously was granted to Maryam السلام, the pure. And his statement that al-adra' al-butul is powerful because this is a refutation against the Jews who claim that Maryam السلام, had engaged in illicit relationships to conceive Isa السلام. But at the same time, he doesn't, he doesn't succumb to the pressure and fall into this cycle of assimilation that no, we believe what you believe. No, no. we don't believe what you believe. This is what we believe. It's different. 
When Najashi hears this, he picks up a stick from the ground and says to Amr that there is not even this much difference between what we believe and they, what the truth is and what they're saying. It's exactly the same. And he sends them off. And this was Najashi's honesty and the barakah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in Jafar radiallahu anhu's words. Never say something that you don't really believe in. And as a Muslim, when you're confused on something, turn back to what Allah and His Rasul teach. If you aren't unique, if your message isn't different, then why would someone even consider accepting it? People who accept Islam see the uniqueness in Islam. They see the story is different. They see the message is different. There's something special being offered here. There is a liberation, a freedom, true monotheism. There is true justice. The only problem is the world hasn't seen what Islam has to offer yet. We have kept it hidden. We haven't shared the story of our Prophet, of our Sahaba, of the Qur'an. And those Muslims who are skeptical themselves, their greatest challenge is their jahala and ignorance of the deen. Because when you understand what your deen is, when you understand what your religion is, your confidence isn't going to decrease, it's going to increase. Over the winter break, I spent a week in Toronto teaching a class on hadith rejection. The origins of hadith rejection, the cause of hadith rejection, how we Muslims believe in hadith. We view it as a source of authority. The sunnah is an authority on the ummah. And after that lecture, was, after the five days were done, so many people came to me and they said, from the audience, there were almost 600 people that took that class. So many people came to me and they said, Shaykh, Wallahi, before this class started, I was skeptical of hadith myself. And I'm so happy that I had a few hours in this class studying this content. It gave me so much more confidence. I wish I can teach the same thing to my family members. Leave aside the Muslims, the non-Muslims, the Muslims are the ones that are in a crisis. They're not sure if they should believe in their own deen. The Muslims are in crisis. They don't know if they should actually even question the authenticity of hadith because they're worried that if I start tugging at this, maybe it'll all just fall apart and there will be nothing there. Maybe we're all supposed to just go along with the charade that Muslims put this idea of authenticity and authentic Qur'an, authentic sunnah together. If we ask questions, people are terrified that if I look into this, maybe it isn't really what it's supposed to be and I'm gonna lose my iman, so I'm just gonna go along with the play. There's no play here. There's no sleight of hand here. There's no charade here. Alhamdulillah, this deen is the real deal. The Muslim scholars weren't joking around. They had izzah for Allah and His Rasul. So they put their lives into it. They dedicated everything they had, their, their day, their night. And this is a tradition that goes all the way back to the Sahaba. They spoke the truth. Shaykh Muhammad Awama, in his book, Adab al-Ikhtilaf, he says that the, the, the sign of the Ahlul Sunnah is that when they narrate, they narrate what is for them and also what is against them. We don't shy away. If there is an ayah, if there is a hadith, or there is an opinion that someone said, whether it coincides with my personal opinion or not, the task of the narrator is to convey it. Because the Prophet ﷺ taught us, فَلْيُبَلِّغِ الشَّهِدِ الْغَائِبِ The one that is present should convey to the one that is absent because it is possible that tomorrow someone will understand it better. Maybe the one that you convey it to, Allah will bless them with a deeper understanding. Now go and read the works of 
إمام النووي رحمة الله عليه ابن حجر الأسقلاني رحمة الله عليه علامة قسطلاني رحمة الله عليه بدر الدين العيني رحمة الله عليه أنور شاكشميلي رحمة الله عليه زاهد الكوثري رحمة الله عليه you have the works of Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghuda رحمه الله تعالى go and look at the works of these people مانا يوسف بن نوري رحمة الله عليه الشيخ الحديث مانا محمد زكريا كاندهلي رحمة الله عليه مانا قاسم نانوتي رحمة الله عليه الشيخ الهند رحمة الله عليه you know Shah Waliullah himself, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, each of these people, Allah Azawajal gave them a depth of understanding that was unique. Well, I was once sitting with a scholar, a very known scholar of our time, I won't say his name for the sake of the gathering, and he said to me that I read Shah Waliullah Rahmatullahi Alayhi's, who was Dahlawi, he's from India, subcontinent. Shah Waliullah, Dahlawi Rahimahullah Ta'ala's Hujatullah Al Baligha. And I found no book to second it. He said, I found this to be one of the most intellectual takes on the deen. Go and read the, word, read the words of the works of Fakhruddin al-Razi. Go and read the works of Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. Read these people. Read the biographical, biographical works of Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi. There is no dars that I've delivered in this entire series without going through line by line of the biographical entries of Imam Shamsuddin al-Dahabi. Every single one of these. Abu Nu'im al-Asfahani's Ma'rifat al-Sahaba. There is no dars without that. It doesn't exist. There is no dars that I deliver here on these Tuesdays, during this series specifically, that I haven't gone through Imam Ahmad rahmatullahi alayhi's musnad to see which narrations add up to the narrative and which ones should be included, which ones should not be included. But the irony is, the Muslim doesn't know. There's no desire to read. There's only a desire to Google search things. So you get partial pieces here, there, here, there. And we have this broken understanding of what our deen is. Ja'far radiallahu an, he, uh, while he was in Habasha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed him with three sons, Abdullah, who narrates abundantly from his father, many narrations of his exist. Aun and Muhammad bin Ja'far as well. He returned back to Medina Munawwara, when the Prophet ﷺ had just returned from the conquest of Khaybar in the seventh year after Hijrah. You have to appreciate this. Because bear in mind, once he returns back to Medina Munawwara, he is only going to live for a few months before he leaves this dunya. I talked about his sacrifice. He left Rasulullah ﷺ in the fifth year of Nubuah. Eight years there, seven years here. Fifteen years that he could have spent with the Prophet of Allah. You can't even begin to imagine how much he missed Rasulullah And how much Rasulullah missed him. Ja'far returns to Medina Munawwara. Nabi Wasallam sees him. فَالْتَزَمَهُ رَسُولُ The Prophet he hugs him. وَقَبَّلَ بَيْنَ عَيْنَيْهِ And kissed him between his eyes. Imam al-Sha'bi narrates this riwayah. And then he said, I don't know what I'm more happier of. The conquest of Khaybar, which took forever, because they had these forts and they made it very hard for the Muslims. Was it the conquest of Khaybar or the arrival of Jafar? And the fascinating thing is, the conquest of Khaybar happened at the hands of his younger brother. Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu who basically got tired of the forts of the Jews of Khaybar. And he approached the fort, grabbed the door, and, and basically ripped it out of its hinges. 
ripped a door out of its hinges. Next time you're at home, I want you to just tug at the door at your home and try to understand what's going on here. And we're not talking about door hinges that are like the size of a fry. We're talking about door hinges that are like, they're massive. Door hinges that are thicker than your cups that you drink from, made of solid metal. And doors that are thick to keep an army out. And Ali radiallahu anh has given the flag by Rasulullah that go and do your thing. And he takes the flag of Rasulullah even though he had pain in his eye, he went to the front and he got the Muslims victory in the battles of Khaybar. So Nabi Sallallahu returns back and Jafar is there and the Prophet Sallallahu says, I don't know if I'm more happy at the conquest of Khaybar, which is a great victory for the Muslims, am biqudumi Jafar, or at your return, O Jafar. It's such a pleasure to have you back. Jafar he spent his time with Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He narrates from the Prophet of Allah. Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, other than the story of Habasha, doesn't narrate any narrations from Jafar Marfuan. He doesn't have any narrations there. However, if you go to some of the other collections of hadith, you have to go to the other collections. You'll find in some of the other Masanif, Masanid, and some of the other Musannafs, that now the ulama begin to narrate some of the other narrations from him. For example, there is a riwayah and Jafar, it's in the book Al-Ima ila Zawaid al-Amali wal-Ajza. And Jafar bin Abi Talib and the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam kana idha nazala bihi karbun. Jafar radiallahu anhu says that when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam faced any difficulty or calamity, he would say, La ilaha illallah al-Halim al-Kareem. La ilaha illallah Rabbul Arshil. Adeem, walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. He narrates this hadith from the Prophet Similarly, Ibn Abi Shayba al-Kufi, in his Musannaf, narrates regarding Jafar bin Abi Talib, that Jafar r.a.s. children narrate that he, that Jafar r.a.s. would wear his ring in which hand? In his right hand. Yes, correct. Similarly, Khatib Baghdadi, in his book, he has an entire book dedicated to Salatul Tasbih, which is a whole conversation of its own. That, you know, Nabi Sallallahu he taught us this method of praying four rak'at, where a dua is read a total of 300 times. And Nabi Sallallahu said, whoever prays this salah, their sins will be forgiven, past and everything. So Khatib Baghdadi has a whole book dedicated to this. ذِكْرُ صَلَاةِ التَّسْبِيحِ وَلَا حَادِيثِ الَّتِي رُوِيَتْ عَنِ النَّبِي Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam فِيهَا وَإِخْتِلَافُ this is the name of the book by the famous Khatib Baghdadi. So in there he narrates that Nabi said to Jafar ibn Abi Talib, Jafar ibn Abi Talib, should I not give you a gift? Should I not bless you? He said, Qala Jafar, Bal Ya Rasulullah. Bala Ya Rasulullah, of course. So to that, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught him to salli until the end. Then he taught him the whole method of praying Salatul Tasbih. Because Nabi Sallallahu because he came in the seventh year, 
The seventh year of Hijrah is an important one because that was also the year the Prophet ﷺ and the companions were given permission to spend three days in Mecca as a result of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah which happened the previous year. So when Nabi ﷺ went for his Umratul Qadha, Ja'far was also with Rasulullah ﷺ. He was with the Prophet of Allah. And when Nabi ﷺ spent the three days in Mecca, and it was time for them to return. The Quraysh, they said to Ali radiallahu anhu, قُلِّ صَاحِبِكَ أُخْرُجْ فَقَدْ مَضَ الْأَجَلِ Get out of here now. Your three days are gone. It's time for you to leave Mecca. Go back to Medina. So right when they were leaving, Hamza radiallahu anhu had a daughter who was still in Mecca. She rushed up to the Muslims and said, Take me with you. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Sahaba scooped her up. Okay, you're coming back with us. Now there were three companions that disputed her custody. Her custody. On one hand, you had Ali radiallahu anhu. He said, "I'm going to take her." And then you had Zaid radiallahu anhu. He said, "I will take her." And then Jafar radiallahu anhu also made a claim that I'm going to take the daughter of Hamza radiallahu anhu home and take care of her. Subhanallah, they took care of orphans. The opposite of us. We're running away, and they're running towards. May Allah give us tawfiq to understand. Everyone presented their case. Ja'far radiallahu anhu, when he presented his case, he said that she will come to my home because I am her uncle and my wife is his khala. Is her khala, sorry. Because Hamza radiallahu anhu's wife was Asma bint Umais radiallahu anhu's sister. And Asma bint Umais radiallahu anhu was Ja'far radiallahu anhu's wife. So her khala is with me. And at that point, Rasulullah made the famous statement that Al-Khalatu bi manzilatil um. The Khala is like the mother. So she will go with Ja'far because the Khala will take care of the child the best. The Khala refers to the sister of the mother. That she is the Khala and she will take care of. And everyone has a special relationship with their Khala. Like, you know, their father's sister, or their, sorry, their mother's sister. There's a special bond and relationship. It was in the eighth year after Hijrah when the Romans began to cause some problems that Rasulullah dispatched an army to deal with them. And when the Prophet was sending off the army, he said that the leader of the army will be Zayd bin Harith, Harith who was like a son to the Prophet. And if he is martyred, then Ja'far will take his place. And if he is martyred, then Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu anhu will take his place. فَإِنْ قُتِلَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ بْنُ رَوَاحَةَ أُصِيبَ فَلْيَخْتَرِ الْمُسْلِمُونَ لِأَنفُسِهِمْ أَمِيرًا مِّنْهُمْ And if anything happens to Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu anhu, then you can choose the next leader yourself. It's up to you. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa generally didn't do this. He would appoint one leader, not three. But the Prophet sallallahu his sequence was an indication that something different was going to happen in this battle. The Muslims arrived in Muta, which is in current-day Jordan. When they arrived there, they saw that the Romans had outnumbered them. The Muslims were 3,000, and in some accords, the army of the Romans was close to 100,000. Some narrations, 50, 70, 80, they're all narrations there. They weren't sure what to do. Some of the Sahaba said, let's go back to Medina. This is not real. 
So then they said, did you come here to live or did you come here for Jannah? They said, we came for Jannah. So then the Sahaba said, Jannah is in the battlefield, not in 72 degrees controlled nest temperature. That's not where Jannah is. Go forward. So they started. And it wasn't too far into the battle that Zayd bin Haritha was martyred. In one narration, the Sahaba, they say that at that same time, Nabi ﷺ was sitting with us in Medina Munawwara and he said that Zayd has been martyred. Allah had informed him. So the Prophet of Allah cried and the companions cried. Jafar then took the flag of the Muslims and began to fight. The Quraysh, they attacked him. Not the Quraysh, the, the Romans attacked, attacked him. And they cut off his right arm. Jafar wasn't going down too easily. He tossed the flag of the Muslims in his left. And they then chopped off his left arm. He took what remained from his arms and hugged the flag of the Muslims, the flag that was given to them by Rasulullah that my arms can go, but this deen is going to continue. This honor will be held high. And a third person came and struck Jafar which sliced him literally in half. He got cut in half. Ibn Umar says that we searched for Jafar and we found him among those that were martyred and we saw in his body close to 90 wounds on one part of his body. He had inflicted 90 wounds. He fought and fought and fought right till the end. And then Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu anh took the flag and he fought courageously until he was martyred as well. The Muslims were gutted. What do we do now? So they began to look left and right. Who's the next person? And tucked away in the ranks was someone who had, an accepted, who had accepted Islam recently, Khalid bin Walid radiallahu They said, this man, give him the flag. He said, no, no, there are senior Badri companions here. I'm, I'm a junior. They said, no, go forward. And in that riwayah, when the Prophet of Allah was speaking to the Sahaba in Medina, he said to them that the flag has now reached the hand of a sword from the swords of Allah. The battle starts now. And therefore he was given the name Saifullah. The sword of Allah. When Khalid was on his deathbed, he was crying. The companion that was there, he said, why are you crying? He said, I wanted shahada and I'm dying here like a coward on my bed. So that person said, I was there the day the Prophet of Allah called you Saifullah and we all knew that you would not die in the battlefield because no one can break the sword of Allah. That was an honor given to you. The sword of Allah has been protected. And your honor, your reward is with Allah Azawajal. Finally, when the Caravan when the army Khalid bin Walid got them victory in that battlefield, which is a whole different story. It's a fascinating story. One day we'll cover it if we make it there, inshallah. They returned back to Medina Munawwara victorious. And when they arrived, Rasulullah was given the news that they have all been martyred. These are the people. The Prophet was overwhelmed in grief and began to cry and wanted to deliver the news of Jafar an's martyrdom to his family directly himself. The Prophet of Allah found 
Asma bint Umais radiallahu anha in her home. And she had cooked a meal for the return of her husband because she knew the caravan was about to return. Ajinat ajinaha wa ghasalat baniha wa dahanathum wa albasathum. And she had washed her kids, put fragrance on them, put on new garments. Baba's going to be home today. Rasulullah he came in, there was a sadness. Asma bint Umay says, when the Prophet of Allah came, there was a sorrow. رَأَيْتُ غُلَالَةً مِنَ الْحُزْنِ تُوَشِّحَ وَجْهَهُ الْكَرِيمِ That there was this darkness, this sadness that was over the face of Rasulullah غُلَالَةً مِنَ الْحُزْنِ Huzn is grief. غُلَالَة refers to like a thin fabric, a thobar raqiq. She's saying like there was this dark, there was this thin fabric that was hanging over the Prophet's face, not literal, right? But there was this, there was this sorrow that was over the face of Rasulullah Sallallahu like a layer of, of grief on the face of Nabi Sallallahu when he entered. She said, I didn't want to ask him what happened because I was afraid of what he would say. So I just watched. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he sat down and said, bring the children of my beloved Jafar. So the children came running out to hug Rasulullah to play with Prophet thinking their father was on the other side. The Prophet began to kiss them and he began to smell them, smell their fragrance. And وَعَيْنَاهُ تَدْرِفَانِ مِنَ الدَّمَعِ Nabi was crying all along. فَقُلْتُ Asma bint Umais then asked, O Messenger of Allah, why are you crying? The Prophet said that my brother Jafar was martyred. Asma bint Umais radiallahu anha began to cry. And to that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Ala mithli Jafar faltabkil bawaki. That on the likes of Jafar, anyone that wants to cry should cry. He was special. I really love this man. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then said, Isna'uli li ali Jafar ta'aman. But go and make some food for the family of Jafar. فَقَدْ شُغِلُوا عَنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ Because they are occupied of themselves. They're in so much pain. Someone take care of them. The Prophet ﷺ then said to them, that take pride and happiness in knowing that his arms that were cut off in return, Allah gave him wings that he flies through paradise with. Ja'far al-Tayyar. He was given two wings. And it's with that he enjoys the view of Jannah. رَأَيْتُ جَعْفَرًا لَهُ جَنَاحَانِ فِي الْجَنَّةِ عَنَبِ هُرِيرَ رضي الله عنه Imam al-Sha'bi rahimahullah ta'ala says that Ibn Umar رضي الله عنه when he would say salam to Ja'far رضي الله عنه son Abdullah he would say to him As-salamu alayka alayka yabna dhil janahin that salam upon the one who is a child of the one with two wings. That's the honor of your father. Asma bint Umais radiallahu anha then went on to marry Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu She became the wife of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu Abu Bakr Siddiq brought her into his marriage. And with Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu she had a child, Muhammad bin Abi Bakr. And then after the passing of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu she then married Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anh. 
So, Imam al-Shabi narrates, I'm sorry, uh, Ali an says, that one day someone came and said, who was better? Who was the better husband? At this point she's married to Ali an. Someone came and asked Asma an, who was the better husband? Jafar or Abu Bakr? Which one was a better husband? Jafar or Abu Bakr? In one narration, her son Muhammad bin Jafar and Muhammad bin Abi Bakr were both fighting with one another. My dad was better, my dad was better, my dad was better, my dad was better. So Ali radiallahu an, he said, Ya Asma iqdi baynahuma. Answer them, who was a better father? Faqalat, ma ra'aytu shabban kana khayran min Jafar. I did not see a young man better than Jafar, and I did not see an older man better than Abu Bakr. Because she married him while Abu Bakr Siddiq was much older. So then Ali said, What about me? You did not see a young man better than Jafar, my brother, and neither did you see an old man better than, than Abu Bakr. He then said, وَلَوْ قُلْتِي غَيْرَ هَذَا لَمَقَدْتُكِ But your answer was right. You were honest. So then she responded back that there is khayr in you too. I have found much pleasure in your companionship. Abdullah bin Jafar says that I never approached my uncle Ali an and asked him of something while mentioning the name of my father and Ali an turned me away. That never happened. He really respected his brother a lot, respected his brother a lot. So today we covered the story of Sayyidina Jafar bin Abi Talib one full of so many riwayat, so many lessons, so much to take in, so much to be inspired by. The lessons are here for us. Their lives are present in front of us. There's so much for us to internalize. What legacy these people left behind? At every step you see a new story. At every point you see another powerful lesson. The sacrifice that they put into serving this deen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow these gatherings to be an inspiration for us all. May we adjust our ways. May we find our path. May we find inspiration. May we find guidance. May we find strength. May we learn what our moral compass should be. May we understand our priorities. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to live with sacrifice in this dunya. May we find it easy to sacrifice and overcome leaving our comforts. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the opportunity to serve Him with honor. And live in this dunya with honor and leave this dunya with the honor of shahada as well. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Muhammad. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.